It's May 20th, 2018, and this is episode 366 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're getting some outside perspectives. The star of today's show is Christian Garcia, a new correspondent on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show based in the south of Venezuela. On today's episode, we hear his first segment where he shares how he's using Bitcoin as a fact of daily life and some of the crazy challenges that come from living through hyperinflation. After the break, I sit down with the lead of Neural Capital to talk about cryptocurrency hedge funds and security tokens. But first, I caught up with Lamar and Leif, who we last spoke to on Let's Talk Bitcoin 276 episodes ago. Today, just like then, they're working on some very interesting initiatives that run the gamut from practical and commercial to community education. Enjoy the show. Hey, All right, cool. So we are live and recording. Hey, everybody. Adam B. Levine here from Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today, I'm here at the Distributed Markets event in beautiful Chicago at the Navy Pier. Uh, I am here today for my first interview with uh, Lamar and Leif, formerly of FIVA. And now, guys, what are you doing? Man, we're doing quite a bit. Uh, we have a company called Hydro. Uh, we started off, man, what was that, what, three years ago? Man. Yeah, it's like been a while. Man. Yeah, I know. So uh, we started off uh, Hydro three years ago. Uh, we're in the trade finance space. Um, we've been targeting uh, companies and corporates, uh, bank, banks as well. So we do, uh, we tokenize invoices, allow the suppliers to sell those. And investors can come in and help uh, put in some some capital into these companies very quickly so they don't have to wait 60 to 90 days later. Well, so hang on, let me stop uh, you right okay. there. So what, what do you mean by tokenized invoice? Because I have not heard this term before. So we basically take an invoice from the originator and create a digital representation of it onto into our network and then allow that originator to sign that invoice as being the originator and then we can trade those invoices throughout the network one to each other in a forensic audit trail but through the cryptographic uh, key pairs basically through those private public key pairs that's how we work it. so when someone creates an invoice you then take that and you turn it into essentially a token and then that Correct. token gets yep. sent from the verified originator's key yep. to whoever it is that has to pay it. Is there right. so does it ever travel between anyone besides No, that's people? the whole point. So, so we're just tracking this this interaction. So the originator is selling it to someone else and then the obligor who has to pay for it has to come in and pay it later. So they sell it because the obligor wants to extend the days payable so far out that the people who have the invoice want to get paid way earlier. So what they wind up doing is selling that at a discount. So let's say if the invoice is worth $100, they may sell it for $97. Okay. And then the guy who is holding it for 97 turns around and gets the $100. Okay, back. so in my past life when I was working in uh, environmentally friendly food service packaging, uh, there was a concept of uh, payment terms of net 30, right? Yeah, yep. So net Correct. 30, net now 60, net 90. Yeah. 90. Right, exactly. There's all kinds of different. So what that basically bigger. means is that I give you an invoice and you have 30 days or whatever the term is to pay it. But a lot of times, if you paid it in advance, you actually got a discount off of that. So essentially what you've done is you've taken that model and you've made it so that it can happen between more than just the person who's uh, generating the invoice and the person who's selling the invoice. And you make it so the person who gets the invoice, who's actually, uh, you know, who wants to be paid, instead of them being paid in 30 or 90 days or whatever, they get paid as soon as they sell yeah, the tokenized invoice. Correct. And then that person actually collects on it at the net 30 term date. Correct. Exactly. You got it. Interesting. You cool. It. Very that's, cool. That's what the, but it's, it's centered around a lot of things called trade assets asset applications so you have like factoring you have like supply chain finance and you have accounts receivable 
and that's part of what we're doing. But we're also building on top of that because that stuff takes a while. We're dealing with banks and all that. But we went back to our roots a little bit, and I'll let Leif talk about that. We went yeah. back to the fever type of roots again. So talk Yeah, so that. we went back to our fever type roots. Uh, we started a group uh, on Facebook. It was initially called the Black Coin Group. Uh, and the whole idea around it was economic collaboration, you know, to eradicate, you know, discrimination against finances and those kinds of things. And then, of course, Black Panther took off. It was a big movie. And one of our members was Alicia. 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 Shout out to Alicia. Yeah, shout out to Alicia. She coined the group Wakanda, right? Uh, you know, in, in, in response to Wakanda. So we actually changed the name of the group. Lamar was tinkering with it one night and... <laughs> and he hit save, and you know the name of the group changed to Wakanda, and so it stuck. And so we're now the Wakanda group. And since what January seventeenth, January seventeenth, when we launched, we had about four hundred members. And then recently this week, uh, we did what we call we do membership Mondays every week, uh, and we released the Garvey. Uh, we released a coin within the group. Like a group coin. Yeah, we released a group coin. Just for, for education. For education yeah. so people could get an understanding of what cryptocurrency was. Because, again, you know, you think about African Americans and, and other groups that really not targeted so much in this space. So, so we wanted to educate them on how to utilize cryptocurrencies, how to share. Anyway, long story short, Monday we did a membership drive, you know, like come to the group. We went from 11000 to 21000 Wow. This past week. Okay, so first off... <laughs> Spell that. Wakanda? Wakanda. W-A-C-O-I-N-D-A. It's an open group for everybody. Okay, cool. There's a lot of people who are in that group following me. Because I've been educating people on cryptocurrencies. Because for a lot of times, like even at this conference, there aren't that many African Americans. And it's not really, these things aren't really targeted toward certain people of color. It's not really targeted even toward women. And so I said, you know what? Leif and I kept waiting for somebody else to take it on. He was like, why don't we just educate people? So I started going live and just talking about blockchain. I've had people on like David Johnston. I've had uh, Sean Wilkerson on just to bring some of the people that we met along the way. Carolyn Malachi, our first yeah, guest. Shout Malachi. Out to Shad, yeah, Carolyn Malachi that was at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. So we were at Toronto. Uh, Andreas. I met Andreas. At, yeah, 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 you were at Toronto. Yeah, yeah. We met yep. Toronto. So we Toronto met him, yeah, we met him at, uh, at, we met Andreas at uh, Texas. But that's where we met Carolyn Malachi. So we just brought those people in because still a lot of these people are newbies. Yeah. So they don't even understand cryptocurrency and the power of them and using them actually as a currency. Most people are coming in trying to speculate on them because they see the prices going up and down. But we're, we're going back to the old school way and like, listen, this is about freedom. This is about us owning your own your keys, making sure that you have ownership of this stuff and moving that direction. So that's... That's what we're teaching people, and it just like started taking a life of its own. We yeah, try to put it out there for education. It, it, has a, it has its own life. The, yeah. the, the most beautiful thing about the launching of the coin was the fact that people were openly sharing it. Like we went to sleep, launched and went to sleep, woke up and it was the like, group was like it was like this boom, this sonic boom of giving and sharing within the group, which was awesome. There really seems yeah. to be a difference between coins that launch and have kind of that financial speculation component to them versus coins that are kind of built around that community. And it reminds me of kind of the early days of Dogecoin, where it was like exactly. you could buy Bitcoin or you could basically get Dogecoin for free by mining it or exactly. getting it from somebody else, exactly. and then they just give it around. So you know, we usually so uh, so first off the. Uh, the industrial product you guys are working on or the institutional product you're working on, that's really interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. But the project that you're working on here reminds me a lot of LTB coin, but we were talking about it 
And you're, I mean, like, it actually sounds like, you know, it's taken off now in a way that LTB coin perhaps didn't because, you know, we did it too early. Maybe now is the right time. Talk to me about that. What's actually going on with the coin itself? Yeah, so so that's a great point. Doing it too early uh, back in 2013 when we got into space, we were trying to give it away. Like, we were giving Bitcoin away. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? We were yeah, like, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. We were trying to, because people didn't understand it, right? They didn't get it. Uh, there was no price value to it in, in terms of what it is today. So the marketing wasn't there. Of course, we knew back then everything was Bitcoin was, you know, Silk Road was like the main headline <laughs> for Bitcoin. Yeah, so it was very hard to get people even interested in being educated, right? And so a lot of the people that are in our group came in around uh, December, of course, you know, sure. November last year, everything went up. When the beacon happened. Exactly. So, so, so that got people interested in it and they had no idea about the history behind cryptocurrency or the reason why people were so adamant about it. So now we're, we're starting to educate them. It's like, I know you came here for, you know, for, for the grits and potatoes, but here's the meat, right? Right. You know, so here's the meat of it and here's what it's really about. So southern. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> and so, so we started just, you know, just, just slowly telling people and we started with a foundation of love a foundation of sharing, a foundation of freedom to, to like, this is what it's really about. It's about people. This, this currency stuff, it's just, you know, it's, just a side note, right? It's good use of it, yeah, exactly. but it's not it's, the use of it. Yeah, because the whole purpose behind Bitcoin was control your money so you could send it to whoever you want, right? Yeah, that was the original vision. Yeah, so so <laughs> we so we're trying to get back to that original vision and look and get people to look at it from a community perspective as opposed to a get rich quick. Excuse yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, increasingly I've been thinking, you know, like in situations like that, people come for the sizzle, but they stay for the steak, right? Exactly. If you do a good job with it. Exactly. So cool. That's great to hear. I'm glad you guys are having success with that. And best of luck. I'll uh, check that out. Uh, awesome. Yeah, come here, brother. Um, come on, come on through, brother. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, uh, okay, cool. So tell me a little bit more about your uh, kind of institutional project. Yeah, because, so, so token, okay, so again. You're tokenizing uh, invoices and basically taking the traditional net 30, net 90, whatever kind of terms exist, and you're making it so that you're kind of solving the friction on the one side. What what technology are you actually using for this? Is it all Bitcoin, so, or kind of where'd you build it? So here's the thing. We built it because when we first launched this, no one was really talking about using blockchain um, as a technology. When we were in Boost VC yeah. and we went up on stage, people were looking at us like, hmm, what are you guys doing? This is all Bitcoin here. It seems like people started noticing you can take the technology and use it for other things. So we started off with a derivative of Bitcoin. Like literally, we used the derivative of Bitcoin, used open assets protocol. That's how we did it. As we moved on, we started realizing that these banks, they all have their own blockchain that they're standing behind. Mm -hmm. So of course, some of the larger banks use Quorum, which is an Ethereum type of derivative. Other banks are looking at Hyperledger. So we realized that we would have to figure out a way to combine these types of networks by basically saying, okay, what network are they working with? Let us be able. So we had, we're pretty good at a lot of different blockchains right now, just because the people we're selling to, right? Yeah. We we have to understand that. Right. For and sure. So our initial chain is that, but we've been doing a lot of work with Quorum right now, just because some of the larger banks. I mean, I don't even have to say the bank's name, but some of the larger <laughs> banks are working with Quorum, right? So that's what we're that's what we're working on. But at the end of the day, it's about us creating that network. For us, it's more about the network. That's why I tell people, if you're going to have a network, that probably is, needs to be the first reason why you use a blockchain. 
if you don't have a network and you're going to just do everything for yourself, just use yeah. a database. Right. What's the point? Yeah, exactly. But if you're going to allow all these people in your network to actually write to it, write to the database, then you might need to look towards a blockchain. So it's really interesting to me that you guys have kind of gone this direction because it's a, you know, in the years since we've last talked, I think the last time we talked was 2014 in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, you know, like I've kind of had that same experience too, where like you build stuff for, on Bitcoin and Bitcoin has advantages, but it also has disadvantages. And ultimately, who cares what technology you use? Ultimately, yeah. isn't it about exactly. trying to get real users actually doing real yes. things on the blockchain? MySQL, Postgres, right? This right. is what's so funny. When we talk about databases, no one cares. Right. <laughs> like, no one cares. Like, exactly. no Mong- sizzle. MongoDB, no right. right? But then we talk about blockchains, like people have this. Like inherent thing, like you got to use this blockchain. What's right. wrong with you? And it's like, no. If people aren't using it, actually right. using the blockchain, what does it matter? Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It's like it's ridiculous. So I think we're just trying to use whatever's best. So even on the Wakanda yeah. chain, we spawned up an Ethereum type of a chain, so I can also show them smart contracts without writing op codes. Because if I write op codes to people who've never seen right. blockchain <laughs> before, they're gonna be like, what the heck is this? Right. So now we can write smart contracts that they can at least read. And say, okay, when I do this, this other thing yep. happens. Yep. I mean, it just makes sense when you're dealing with education to do that. I'm not saying that Ethereum is better than Bitcoin. Everybody who knows me knows the real. Yeah. But all I'm saying is, is that for this chain, that's what we've done. The uh, only other real question I have is how far along are you with this project? Do you actually have tokens that are representing these invoices Man, going around? With the institutionalized project, we actually are working with banks. We've gone through phase two, Yes. trying to move it. I don't know why we have so many phases. <laughs> Hopefully they're listening. Let's go ahead and go to production. Exactly. Um, but exactly. it's like phase one, phase two, go test, talk to three people, six months later, come back. It's like that thing. So that's the reason why during this midtime, it's waiting. Like we're having a good time going back to our roots and also teaching people yes. about it. Because I think there are people just lost the whole idea of what, what got us excited yep. in the first place. And, and the freedom that it provides and those kind of things. I think people started leaning so much more towards, let's see how much we can make this worth in fiat and not realizing that it's the freedom of the of Bitcoin, it's the freedom of these chains that actually will move the needle. It's not us making everything look like it already looks. There's no value in that. The value is always from zero to one, not one to two. So it's like the stuff that's being created, that's going to be the value. And the things you can only do on the blockchain, that's where you're going to find the most value in the future. That's what we believe. And the the irony behind all of it is I don't even think this whole blockchain thing would have taken off had not the, the market of Bitcoin dipped. True. So, so because it dipped, it, it, it made us innovate. You know, again, our motto is where others see obstacles, we see opportunity. And that's what made us start thinking down the, the, the vein of blockchain. And then, of course, it started taking off a year later. Mar Wilson, Leif Taylor. Uh, this was really a great conversation. Uh, if people are interested in either of your projects or communities, kind of what are some URLs or how should they get in contact? Wallet.wakoinda.com. Uh, you can go to Facebook. You can find us on Wakoinda. It's a Facebook group. Uh, you can follow at Big Mar, B-I-G-M-A-R-H, and at Leif Space, L-A-F-E-S-P-A-C-E. And also for, for our enterprise product, you can find us at hydro.com, H-I-J-R-O.com. Yep, H-I-J-R-O.com. Yes. Yeah. Hydro. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks very much, guys. Thank uh, we you appreciate very it. much, man. <laughs> that was awesome.
How do I use Bitcoin to deal with hyperinflation? Let's start with a little story. It's early in the morning. I open up the fridge to see what I can have for breakfast. It is looking pretty bare. We don't have a lot of options because, you know, communism. So we're missing the eggs and a bunch of other things. For today, I'm going to try to get at least the eggs. And I have the money. That is not the problem. What I don't have is Bolivars. You know, the actual official currency of my country. I have zero of that. Because I keep all my money in bitcoins now. Alright, so the first thing I need to do is to find a seller that takes my bitcoins and gives me Bolivars. All before breakfast. It's easier than it sounds, actually. You see, the cryptocurrency market has been blowing up in my country. We have our hyperinflation and currency controls to thanks for that. And there are traders now online pretty much 24-7. The tough part for me is that I'm no wealthy Bitcoin trader. So I need to find a trader that works with really low volumes, less than $3, so I can buy just the carton of X. I'm a freelancer from Ciudad Guayana, a city at the south of Venezuela. I'm part of the recently impoverished middle class. My dad used to be the main income of my house, but he's an office worker for the public sector. And he earns in Bolivars, which means that recently his income has turned to dust. I currently support my family with an income of about $50 a month. It's not a lot, but we make do, and it's certainly more than most make in Venezuela. Alright, so I'm in the webpage checking the listings at local bitcoins for low volume traders, and after scrolling down for a while I find one that sells me the equivalent of $5 in Bolivares. It's too much for just text, but it's close enough. The process is pretty straightforward at this point. After I make the offer, the page locks down my bitcoins and that serves as a proof that I actually have them. I give the trader my banking information and once he sends me the bolivars, I can release the bitcoins. Luckily, the bank's webpage is working, so the whole process is done in about 5 minutes. This is Venezuela, the land of the highest inflation in the world, which means that now I gotta spend my money as soon as possible. In November of 2017, we officially got the hyperinflation status when we reached more than 50% of monthly inflation for the first time. And that was 7 months ago. Our hyper has been wrecking havoc ever since and shows no signs of stopping. Last month, the inflation reached 80%. The IMF estimated that we would get to 13,000% of annual inflation by the end of 2018. But they will miss the mark big time because we've managed to reach 900% just from January to April of this year. Hyperinflation is not just a catchy term for really high inflation. Although yeah, in a nutshell, hyperinflation is really, really high inflation. It's a different beast. In hyperinflation, the money stops working. It doesn't hold value as it is supposed to. And that simply breaks the economy. Our behavior changes, everyone loses grab of what they should consider expensive, so businesses don't know how much to charge for their products. It's a mess. In hyperinflation the prices can go up while you wait in the line to pay for the product. And that is not a figure of speech, I've seen it happen. So the paydays, or quincenas as we say, usually go like this. The second you confirm the money's in the bank, you have to stop everything you're doing and go spend it in something, anything. For most people it's usually a little food, some corn to make corn dough and some vegetables. By now proteins are out of most people's budget. 
This is where bitcoins come to the rescue, at least for me. They allow me to not have any bolivars laying around and change them just in case I need to buy something. Alright, so back to the X story. The streets are busy with street vendors, as always. But not many are buying anything. The stores don't mark the prices of the products anymore because they change so often, so you gotta ask every time. I see the same scene repeat like five times. A client asks for a price, gets outraged by the response of the seller and then storms off by saying something like, I bought that at half of that price just last week. I buy the big carton of eggs, it costed me the equivalent of about $2 out of the five I'm bringing. It is stupidly expensive considering that our monthly minimum wage is less than $3. So I got the eggs. Mission accomplished, right? Wrong. I can't simply go back to my house and have my breakfast, that's nuts. Remember, I need to empty my bank account, that's like hyperinflation 101. So I hit the market again and get some bananas, some platins and some white cheese. Another feature of our hyper is that, as I told you before, the pricing system breaks and the sellers don't know how much to charge. They need to anticipate how much the merchandise is going to cost when they restock, which is impossible even for economists. I saw the same sheets being sold ranging from 1.9 million bolivars to 2.5 million. That is a huge spread of prices for a product that is being sold literally on the same street. And yes, even the smallest transactions are now costing millions. That's why I've been using the dollar equivalents. Alright, so on my way back I struggled to carry everything at the same time. The platinum guy didn't have plastic bags because even those are scarce now. So I carefully put the platinum on top of the eggs and awkwardly wrapped the rest of my things with the other hand. It was awkward. I often got looked. Normally people don't walk around with this much food. Only the eggs costed me a monthly minimum wage, you know? I even got sexual innuendos from two different ladies and I only walked two blocks. Seriously, they were all like, hey, let me help you with the platins, let me grab those eggs. In a popular market of a poor neighborhood, people can be really outspoken, you know? I'm glad people keep their warmth, even between everything that's happening. It's a kind of warmth that most of the time makes me uncomfortable, but you know, it's warmth nonetheless. The bottom line is that I was getting looks because I had a lot of food with me and it wasn't really a lot of food. Goes to show you how bad our crisis is getting. So yeah, that's how I protect myself from hyperinflation with bitcoins. And that is not the only trick up my sleeve. You see, these days even paying for the products can be a hassle. And I'm not talking about being able to afford the products. Although yeah, that is, that is like the main issue here. I'm talking about the act of paying for the product. The banknotes are scarce, the point of sales don't work. Let's not get into that, that is a story for another day. But it's a real mess, trust me. So one alternative payment method that many businesses are using is that they give you their banking information so you can do a word transfer. It works okay as long as you have the same bank as the seller. If the transfers are made from different banks, they take a day to process. Enough time for the prices to change. And they simply don't work on weekends. So here's my other life hack of sorts. Remember the process of selling bitcoins for valuers, you know, of looking for the trader and then giving him the bank information, waiting, all of that. Alright, 
So what I do is that I find a trader that works with the same bank as the stores I'm trying to buy from, and then give the, the traders the banking information of the store instead of mine. So they deposit the money there. It's the closest thing yet to buying vegetables with bitcoins in my neighborhood. This was Christian Garcia from Venezuela. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. In a world full of speculative opportunities and questionable values, when it comes to your websites and hosting needs, you don't want to gamble. EasyDNS is a full-service domain, DNS, email, and hosting provider based in Canada who thinks your rights matter just as much as you do. EasyDNS is also a longtime sponsor of the show and has been accepting Bitcoin, Ethereum, and now Bitcoin Cash since long before it was cool. When you're thinking about how best to serve your website and its users, think EasyDNS.com. On another note, the Proof of Shirt's initial close offering ends soon, so if you'd like to take advantage of the presale offer, you can pick up two shirts for the bargain price of $25. Head over to ProofofShirts.com and check out today with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Hey there, this is Adam B. Levine. I'm here at the Distributed Markets event in Chicago at the beautiful Navy Pier. I'm here with Ari Nazir, Managing Partner at Neural Capital. Ari, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Adam? I'm pretty good. So uh, tell me about Neural Capital. What do you guys do? So Neural Capital is a actively traded long-short crypto fund. Um, so we take simultaneously long and short positions on a number of cryptocurrencies over various periods of time, and we use sentiment and momentum to drive most of our investments. So you use sentiment and momentum to drive most of your investments. So you're using some sort of AI data or you're just literally no. looking at this manually and handpicking? So we thought about using AI da uh, data early on. And one of the errors and the key issues we realized was algorithms were actually not reliable in a market that can be manipulated pretty easily. So if you have an algorithm that runs anything more than uh, mean reversion and something more sophisticated, uh, there is a situation which... Uh, has happened pretty often where a market maker comes and manipulates whatever data you're using to then trick your algorithm. So we do a bit more old school trading where we use technical analysis um, by looking at actual charts uh, and then we use uh, on-chain analytics. So we'll use um, how much, uh, what the token velocity of a particular chain is or how much money is moving from one wallet to another and then really how many of the early holders are maybe holding or selling their token at any given time. And then it sounds like common sense to kind of filter all that through. Is someone trying to screw with us by messing with the data that we use? Right. So that's the adversarial component of watching that and viewing that at all times. Um, so at the moment, we decided you know it wasn't worth doing the trading and uh, with uh, an AI or algorithm. But obviously, we're evaluating that consistently and on an ongoing basis. But right now, you know, it's a lot of fundamental long-term research, and then really where, where we see the community rallying to at any given point in time, and then taking positions to resemble that. Sure. So as a hedge fund operating the space, I mean, it used to be a rarity. Now it seems like there are more and more of those. You know, these markets a lot of times are very small. How, what kind of size are you actually trying to move into in like a, an average investment? Right. And kind of what's the process of doing that versus what someone might be experienced with on the retail side? Right. So there are now 226 crypto funds in the world that we know of uh, that are registered somewhere between 30 to 50 million actual cryptocurrency users primarily trading or holding some cryptocurrency. The differentiator between a 
a fund and an institutional player and a retail investor obviously is the amount of volume that you could be moving, which on smaller cap tokens could adversely affect the entire price of the ecosystem and uh, of that token and cause massive spikes. And so we've seen this you know, throughout the history of cryptocurrencies, but now with the rise of alternative currencies, uh, not just Ethereum, but other ICOs that we've seen, you've seen a lot of these tokens be pumped and dumped. And often it's by a collected group of institutions or all known players, maybe even retail investors. We use a number of exchanges and over-the-counter desks to try to buy cryptocurrencies and accumulate them without being noticed on the market. Obviously, if somebody knows their addresses, you can see you know what they're buying and holding at any given time, but just dollar cost averaging into positions based on the fundamental and technical research that I think the average retail investor either doesn't have the time for, doesn't have the resources for, or quite frankly, is uh, unable to perform. Sure, not sophisticated enough. For sure, right. there's definitely lots of... Uh, seems like you really have the advantage of scale and bringing, being able to bring to bear kind of a staff here to do all of the diligence that right. the average investor can't do. Right, so what we do uh, in addition to just buying and holding a token, because that's... Uh, anybody can do that, right? And we encourage, you know, people should go and, um, you know, test this out and see see how they uh, like this new digital asset class. But so, uh, one of the things that we do that most other funds even don't do is we will take uh, active positions with teams and say, what do you need help with? Can we help you with operations? Can we help you with recruiting? Can we help you? Uh, we try not to do the marketing aspect too much just because of regulatory concerns. But hey, can we introduce you to the right PR firm? Can we help like do diligence on potential acquisitions? Uh, and then beyond even that, um, you know, oftentimes as part of our diligence, we will build wallets or we'll build uh, other infrastructure around uh, the token to see how it reacts, what the developer ecosystem would be like, is like, and would be like in the future, and sort of uh, how responsive is the team to the developers. And that gives us you know, more certainty in our doing our diligence to say this is going to be valuable, but you know, if you create that wallet or that service, then there, there's also an economic value that is derived from that and actually maybe helps the ecosystem in some way or exploits a critical uh, bug or feature um, really a bug or shows a new feature that wasn't really there before. So you're like an early adopter enthusiast group plus a hedge fund. Yes. Okay, I gotcha. All right, cool. So um, one of the other products that you have kind of in the works is this tokenized fund of funds offering. Right. Tell me about that. What does that mean? So uh, the fund of funds is a very opaque, well, the financial space generally is very opaque, uh, not Many people really know what is happening at any given time. There's a lot of institutions exchanging capital, you know, and part of that is a fund-to-fund -fund structure, which uh, a fund-to-fund -fund structure takes capital from funds and then allocates that capital in a more scrutinized manner to other funds. So they would take a fee uh, by allocate, uh, taking capital from institutions or individual investors and allocating to a number of funds. The only concern. Uh, the, one of the main issues though with that approach is the majority of investors often can't take significant positions as limited partners in a number of funds while getting the same diversity. So what a fund of funds does is for the same ticket size that you would need for one fund, give you access to 10 different funds, which helps with, you know, hedging away the idiosyncratic risk of any particular fund. Or so, so to interrupt here, so sure. it's a mutual fund for hedge funds. So it's not a mutual fund. It's it's a literally a investment vehicle like you would invest in a fund. Since it's tokenized, it gives you a token that has a financial stake in other funds. But a mutual fund is some, oftentimes it's uh, into securities by themselves. It's uh, it gives you a lot more granularity, really. But with a fund of funds, 
you know, especially with something like the tokenized fund of funds that we have, it does not necessarily give you insights into what each fund is doing or how they're performing or what they're holding. Oh, I see. That I gives see. you so, exposure to that. Okay, okay. So, so you have exposure to the price of all of these uh, instruments, but you don't actually own any of the individual instruments, and so they don't actually have any of the responsibilities to keep you informed that they would someone who's investing directly. They would still inform you on a quarterly basis, okay. but they wouldn't tell you, here's what our portfolio is, here's what we're holding at a given time. And that's different than just investing directly into one of these funds. Okay, great. That makes sense. All right, so uh, that's clearly a security, right? Absolutely. Okay, great. So then... Uh, Not so, skirting around that in any way. <laughs> All right. So that's a security. So uh, kind of where are you with that project, and where does something like this even trade in the current ecosystem? Are you waiting for exchanges to come up before you launch it, or are you already out there? What's your status? So we're, we, are, we have not launched. Uh, it's a security token. It's uh, available based on each jurisdiction. And for anybody that's interested, please visit apextokenfund.com, and you can see what your jurisdiction allows fully compliant. Then the, the logical question which you ask is, what about liquidity? How do I trade this thing? We were less focused on that at the initial offset. We can't disclose you know, what exchanges will be on, but we have a number of partnerships, um, exchanges that do KYC, time money laundering rules, and they do all the proper checks that you need on any particular investor before allowing them to hold it. And one of the other things we're exploring is maybe having a smart contract to evaluate a whitelist of addresses so that you never run into a situation where somebody sells their token to somebody that is performing some sort of illegal activity or should not be holding that token because they're a retail investor, they're unaccredited in the United States, and they're buying this from an investor in another jurisdiction. Right. So that actually has been kind of a big open question. The way the exclusions work, it isn't necessarily that a U.S. citizen has to buy the thing from you in an ICO. They just have to have it. It's a secondary market. Right. So, so the secondary market, the fact that these things can be traded actually creates the issue. And so the token, in a lot of ways, adds more complication because now it's possible to break these rules. So what you're saying is you have a smart contract or you're thinking about developing yeah. a smart contract that would basically eliminate this. So this is really just the, the way that you're issuing your token has a validation mechanism in it. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you, I think you've highlighted here is... Uh, there's a lot of these tokens that are illegal, illicit securities that were, you know, like, you know, XRP. Um, the argument can be made that's, that was created as an illegal security. They try to get listed on Coinbase, but they've been listed on Kraken and a number of other exchanges. And you can have retail investors that should not be holding those types of securities without proper disclosures hold those securities. Now, you know, for us as issuing a compliant security uh, globally, it becomes a big issue to make sure that nobody on the primary market but, and even on the secondary market, you know, acquires these. The secondary market issue is a bit trickier because... Because it's tricky. It, yeah, yeah, because, you know, how do you control at all times that nobody else on the secondary market will ever touch this? Right. And, and smart contracts, so white labeling addresses on a smart contract by making, you know, having a buyer approach a seller and saying, uh, I want to use this, I want to buy this token, uh, and I think the value of it will go up and the seller is willing to, to, you know, sell the token for whatever price. That is actually still possible and it's legal as long as the exchange on which it's listed or the mechanism that's exchanging it checks for KYC and So you also have to, I was thinking to myself, so the problem with this is that uh, if someone puts this token into an exchange, 
Well, the exchange doesn't care about the smart contract, right? Because the exchange is using an off-chain system to actually do their trading and reassigning. The person only has a problem when they try to withdraw it. Mm -hmm. But uh, thinking about it, I guess you just white-label the exchanges that you want to work with who are right. KYC compliant, and that solves that problem too. Right. So you would have to make sure that the any exchanges or marketplaces that you work with do diligent and stringent KYC. It's actually interesting because that's been one of the real problems in the space is that there's no way to stop your coin from being listed, but you have actually come up with a way to actually stop your coin from that's, being listed. That's by one way. Well, so I, I want to make make it clear: we did not create that oh, technology, sure. right? Uh, we're just you know, uh, evaluating the use cases of it. And uh, it sounds and, like uh, some of the first users in this particular type of application, right? Yes. Um, so yeah. So and, and we view a Apex Token as um, something that you buy and that you, over a period of time, redeem for the value that appreciates in Bitcoin, Ethereum, another cryptocurrency, or fiat in U.S. dollars. The type of person that would consider work buying crypto uh, Apex token is somebody that is a long-term believer that believes in technology does not actually want to trade this themselves but does want exposure to the asset class and would rather have professional money managers manage this who do this on a daily basis and full-time basis than trying to do that themselves and that is a compelling pitch uh, especially given the 24-7 global nature of the markets so uh, when we're talking about who's the type of investor you're trying to deal with here you're talking about accredited investors who want exposure to the cryptocurrency space to the digital asset space. Digital asset space. Okay, so or to diversify. So if we're talking about fund of funds token, right? Then effectively, what you're saying is these are multiple crypto hedge funds or multiple funds operated within your specific hedge fund, or kind of what's the what? What are the components of this Apex token? So there's a token, the Apex token. You would buy that, and that uh, gives you a limited partner allocation in. A number up to 10 to 12 other crypto funds uh -huh. so you are buying into the fund of fund and the fund of fund is buying into 10 to 12 other funds okay i got gotcha. you and those funds are buying icos pre-icos trading actively and it's a number of strategies that are diversified uh that uh balance each other out sure so one of the other things about uh, crypto hedge funds most of the time is that the buy-ins are pretty big you right. know, even for accredited investors, sometimes you're talking about you know seven a figures million. to actually get yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. So kind of what? So it seems like this solves that problem too because it makes it right. much more granular. So th th this this solves that because it lowers the barrier sure. uh, to enter for any accredited investor. Say uh, I wanted access to five of the top funds, but each fund size has a minimum one million dollar ticket, uh, and I only have one million to allocate to the entire space. Am I going to invest one million dollars into one fund manager? Right. I could, but that's a very risky bet. Whereas if you invest in a fund of funds and you, with that same $1 million, half a million, $10,000 investment, still get access not to a, not just to a number of funds, but also some of the premier funds in the world that are doing this and seeing the next like Omise go or the next uh, Augur before anybody else at the inception stage. So that sounds really interesting. The last question that I really have for you is um, when you're, oh shoot, I just forgot it. Uh, is Dogecoin worth a buy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> Heavily invested in Doge. Yeah. It's going to be great. So, you know, compared to traditional investments, um, this seems like we're moving in the direction of sort of taking these traditional structures and increasingly moving them onto the blockchain. But you're layering trust in here, right? Now I not only have to trust the fund managers at the kind of endpoints, but I also have to trust you. Yes. So, I mean... 
what kind of risk is there in these funds, relatively speaking? I mean, if every, is everybody just chasing momentum at this point? Because it's kind of felt like that, but I'm not. I'm on the outside looking in, so maybe you can provide some insight. Yeah, um, so for legal disclosures, I would encourage people to go read the legal documents. Sure. Um, but so I, I honestly believe that certain funds will outperform a buy and hold strategy on a number of assets. Uh, I do think the majority of funds in the world will fail, just like the hedge fund failure rate in the traditional markets is incredibly high. Uh, most hedge funds shutter um, at within two years. I think you'll see something similar in the crypto fund space. So then it really comes down to doing the diligence and getting access to these these types of funds. Um, we believe we've done that. You know, we have a number of uh, funds uh, that are backed by some of technologies, early innovators from the 90s, from Web 1.0, Web 2.0, and now 3.0, and they have skin in the game. And, you know, without naming any of the funds, we've spent time with the fund managers more than just, you know, an email and saying, oh, hey, we'd love to be an LP. It's coming to conferences, you know, traveling, seeing, like, how they evaluate uh, tokens. Uh, And one of the advantages of being a fund manager myself is I can call BS, right? Uh, I can say when somebody's just chasing momentum and when they're just FOMO investing at the last stage uh, versus somebody that really understands what what a thesis is, what their particular thesis is, how to evaluate structures, economic uh, incentives, and then how to execute. Uh, last question for real this time. Sure. Um, so, uh, so when we're talking about what makes the token valuable, I understand the underlying. I understand the mechanism by which you're doing it. Tell me about. So, you you, you kind of started talking about this, but I want to get a little more into it. Um, with regards to like, how does this make money at the end of the yeah. day for the investor? Are there are you throwing dividends? Are you you know yeah. just like redeem this or yeah where? So, uh, any fund when you invest has a net asset value at the day that you invest, or the month, or the time period at which you invest. With Apex Token Fund, we will be releasing the net asset value of that token on a quarterly basis by looking at all the distribu- all the performance data of each fund on a quarterly basis. So you'll start seeing, you know, every three months, you will know that the value you put in a dollar, all the funds on aggregate went up ten percent. So that value of that dollar is now one dollar and ten cents. Mm-hmm. If you want, and this is the advantage over a traditional fund structure, Apex Token Fund is liquid. So you say, well, it went up $1.10. For whatever reason, I want to get my investment out. And you want to buy a house, I want to diversify, you know, whatever it is. You can go sell that to somebody else and get close to $1.10, whatever fair market value ends up being. Now, let's say the next month or the next quarter, it goes up 50%. Now that compounds and, you know, it's, it goes down 50% the quarter after. Like, it all just compounds or negates one another. So at the end of the fund cycle, if you hold it till completion, you would get the benefit of all the accrual uh, if it appreciates, which there is no guarantee of, but um, if it appreciates, you would get the ability to redeem it, uh, that token for another currency. That would be the end cycle of that fund. Follow-up. Uh, so on that... Uh, that was the last question. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but there's a follow-up question, not another question. Yeah. That's why I didn't say that again. Um, Must be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so you're only releasing valuation quarterly. Yes. So talk to me about um, how much are you? Is this continuously for sale? Are you just like anybody who comes along and is qualified can buy this and invest more into the fund? So the ICO is only for sale through the end of Q2. Okay. So it's a year. fixed supply then. Yes. Which it's means a fixed that, supply. So, so you, it's you not an EOS keep... model. It's not one of these models where you just keep creating more tokens. It's right. fixed supply, and the idea is, you know, then the value accrues. But if we could just keep in, introducing more tokens in the system, there that doesn't necessarily mean the supply isn't fixed and the value could actually go down even if the front perform really well. So that would be the difference here. Ari Nazar, Managing Partner, Neural Capital. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Adam. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EZDNS.com. Content for today's show was provided by Lamar, Leif, Christian, Ari, and Adam. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens, General Fuzz, and Matthew Mulroney. Christian's segment also featured Venezuelan street noise courtesy of Brian L. This episode was edited by Anna B. Levine. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.